Good job. They can hear you. Oh, sorry. Operation Confidence proudly presents America's Invisible Heroes Radio Talk Show. Tune in weekly on Sundays from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Pacific Time with your host, Consuela Mackey, co-host, U.S. Air Force veteran, Matt Davidson, announcers, Taylor Marcella and Brooke Gadesi, U.S. Army veteran and entertainment host, Charles Whitehead, U.S. Army Special Forces veteran, and I once was whole segment host, Richard Cook. U.S. Army veteran and lifeline for women's veterans segment host, Martha Elena Varela. National Faith Program director and veterans in recovery segment host, Anthony Akinpora. And U.S. Air Force veteran and incarceration to success segment host, Kevin Lewandowski. For more information or to be a guest on our show, email info at operationconfidence.org. Operation Confidence is a grassroots nonprofit. The organization's mission is to provide stable housing for veterans who have experienced homelessness, as well as providing a wide range of supportive services. To help accomplish our goal, a successful landowner has donated land for the project, a world-renowned architect has offered to design the houses, and construction classes from the local community colleges will take part in building the houses. Your support and donations are needed. To get involved, please visit our website at www.operationconfidence.org or email info at operationconfidence.com. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to Americans Invisible Heroes. This show is dedicated to our veterans and their families. Yes, I'm your host, Consuela Mackey, Executive Director of a grassroots nonprofit organization called Operation Confidence. For those who are new to the show, Operation Confidence was created, created to provide a platform for our veterans, and especially those who are homeless and may have a disability. No, I'm not a veteran, but my heart goes out to our veterans. And for that reason, is why this show was created. Now, allow me to introduce our co-host, Charles Whitehead, a board member and U.S. Army Reserve veteran. Taylor Marcellus, a board member and one of our announcers. We have U.S. Army veteran, Martha Varela. She's on our advisory board and she has a weekly segment called Lifeline for Women Veterans. U.S. Arm, Arm, U.S. Air Force veteran, John Ahmed, John, please forgive me for messing up your name. John Oppenheim, he has a bi-monthly segment, and that's called Voices from the Hub. And last but not least, U.S. Army Special Forces veteran Richard Cook, and he has a bi-monthly segment called I Once Was Whole. Now, say hello, everyone. Hello. Hey. All right. Take it away, Martha. You got it, Connie. Embracing diverse women veterans narratives, the intersectionality and women veterans identity. As women, as women's roles in the military have shifted and more are serving in the military, the systems and organizations working with women veterans after military service 
have made a few changes to reflect the diversity, the roles and experiences of women and have thus created a difficult context for women to develop an identity as a veteran. The effects of racism, heterosexism, sexual discrimination, harassment and violence and other forms of oppression, as well as the intersection of these and how they uphold the existing power structures in the military are crucial to understand or to understanding veteran identity, yet they are often overlooked by systems serving women veterans. Other examples of the need for more inclusive narratives for women veterans in services and organizations is the projected increase in the percentage of women veterans and the increased racial and ethnic diversity in the military. As the number of women veterans increases, organizations serving veterans can also provide support to develop self-efficacy, develop new programs, and change existing programs to assist women veterans in connecting in civilian society as veterans and better address their needs, including the accumulated effects of systematic oppression and discrimination they experienced in the military. The United States has approximately 2 million women veterans and less than 450 receive healthcare services through the VA or the Veterans Health Administration. The number of women using mental health and specialty care services through the VHA was 176,000 roughly in 2015. Between 2000 and 2015, the number of women veterans from racial and ethnic groups other than white increased from 30% to 42%, with Black women veterans making up 30% the other racial and ethnic groups. In 2015, 20% of women veterans used VHA services at least one time. While the number of women veterans using VHA has increased, it is far lower than the number of women veterans that are eligible for services. By 2045, the number of women veterans in project in in, is projected to increase from 9% to 18% of the veteran population. Intersectionality has rarely been applied to military service for women veterans and has a very limited scope of research in the military and veteran literature. Intersectionality has been overlooked in programs and services as ways to understand the complexities of women's, of veterans' lives and the efficacy of addressing the issues women face in the military and as veterans. For the purpose of further integrating intersectionality into the narrative for military and women veterans in the next section, I will identify some of the ways in which intersectionality meets identity, specifically in military structures, and explore the diverse and overlapping identities in the military and ways those intersections are crucial to understanding the women veterans' experiences. Defining intersectionality in the civilian world can include identity with more than one maker of difference and the forms of oppression that intersect with these identities. The Women of Color Policy Network released a model policy for social change in a publication about intersectionality and in it, they discuss markers of difference, race, class, gender, ethnicity, sexuality, and other markers of difference are not inherently, inherent, inherently oppressive or forms of oppression. Forms of oppression and discrimination are racism, classism, heterosexism, 
ethnocentrism, ableism, anti-Semitism, or ageism. They are systematic and violent acts of maintaining hierarchies and privilege in society. And this uh, came from some research. It looks like uh, the Women's Health Evaluation Initiative in 2018. Um, and there is some, like a lot of new research that's coming out, right, as we heard. And I, I heard this message also at the PBA's national conference a couple weeks back in Atlanta, that there's really some national discussion um, happening as we speak around this increase for women veterans in the military. And with that will come some um, programming dollars as well. I know that when I had a chance to speak to the Barbara, Barbara Giordano Foundation, um, they were just amazed that this, you know, like in terms of what we're hearing um, about identity, um, they knew who PVA was, but they've never worked with female veterans in wheelchairs. So when you think about it, you know, much like when we hear the word homeless, we have a, a, a certain stereotype in our mind. So when we hear the word uh, disabled veteran, we automatically think of the, the male um, in a wheelchair, right? And there's, there's usually kind of a set identity that we already give to certain terms. So the veterans, right? Women not identifying as veterans if they didn't go to combat or served in the National Guard or things like that. And I know that this rings true for me um, specifically because I dealt with growing up in the middle of, of America um, in the Midwest, I dealt with a lot more racism and a lot more oppression based on my gender than maybe other women dealt with. And so this wasn't a big deal. Like who cares? It's not something you, you show, right. I can't go in and say, I have, um, you know, I've, you know, and not that I'm using this to say, um, you know, that one is worse than the other, but I don't have any physical disabilities. So when I walk in, you wouldn't be able to tell like what that looks like mentally or spiritually or emotionally, what my experience was. And so I think we have to just really continue to challenge ourselves to not, you know, um, go into the, the stereotypes as we often, you know, innocently sometimes, be it may, um, that we do, because there's lots of other stories that women veterans have to share. And the article also pointed out the importance of really making sure that we embrace them, right, holistically. And as I mentioned, um, when I've done some work specifically with just the women vets, um, when I spent some time at the National Veterans Foundation, I mean, I was completely... Um, unaware of the severity of, of the mental health, uh, the physical health of our, our female veterans. And, you know, they've figured out a way to just continue to live life. So whether that means, you know, starting families, just, you know, putting it back in the back of your brain and we're like moving forward. Um, it's really important that we have those very specific resources and programs, like the article points out, ready and in place for women when they do surface, because many of them don't and won't for that reason. They can't continue to go you know, down the, the pipe and then get disconnected somewhere. It's too frustrating, it's too emotional, it's too you know, taxing on whatever it is they're already dealing with. So having things like you know, an emergency financial you know, system set up to where if a woman veteran calls and says, I'm homeless for a couple of nights, I need a hotel room. Well, by the time we call SSBF or by the time we call you know, the VA, I mean, they told one woman veteran, you got to come back in December. And here this poor woman had like severe health issues, uh, you know, heavy medication, come back in December. 
at, you know, that's six months away. So the community really um, will have to step up to buffer those support systems that are there. Um, many women don't know about, but sometimes some of these programs are full, um, as I've, I've seen is often the case um, at the VA. But it puts us in a unique position to continue to spread the message, right? To continue to partner. And, and for those of us that are in these great positions to create new programming, we're gonna hear more and more um, coming down the pipe in regards to women veterans and designing new programs that better fit their needs because the, the rates aren't going down in terms of, of the help that they need. So I'm excited to be um, in a position to where I can start looking at um, what that new programming is going to look and feel like to help support more of our, our women vets. Well, you know, uh, that's where Operation Confidence started off as individual, helping individuals with disabilities, especially our women veterans. And it's a shame that all of the different accessible equipment and resources are not available for them. And technology today is amazing what they have out there for them to be able to live a productive life. And this is where we are. And that's what, what Combat Boots and Lace is all about as well. So you want to get more people involved and to be able to, as you said, explore and introduce. I mean, just like for an example, clothing. You would think just because uh, an outfit is good for an able-bodied person, Operation Commons was responsible for being a part of that team that took buttons away from from blouses and shirts and I mean blouses and skirts that couldn't even open because of a zipper and a button and put Velcro tape in the place. No one never thinks about that. And how uh, fabrics, you can sit on uh, the wrong fabric because you're in a wheelchair and you get sores, but no one thought about choosing fabrics where you don't get these type of precious sores. And I mean, there's things that individuals that are able-bodied don't even think about. So this is what we're all about. And uh, I'm really happy to know that you were able to uh, share that information because it's extremely important. Yeah, and traditionally, you know, uh, to go back in uh, the old times where, you know, you, there are so many women that, women veterans that won't, uh, uh, you know, go for the, the help that's out there because, you know, they're, you know. It rejects them. Right. At least they think about being rejected. Yeah, and you know, a, a lot of part of that too was back in the days, if a man is homeless, people be like, go get a job. But right. if a woman was homeless or something, there'll be more people willing to help her, whether she had kids or not, just because, you know, it was like, you know, it was looked upon as, you know, hey, we need we need to take care of our women and children, kind of. Even if they were, um, you know, like, and I'm not saying that uh, women were lazy or anything. What I'm saying is that people are, are more uh, quicker to help a lady who's in trouble, you know, like family members and, and friends who say, oh, you know, she's having problems. Whereas a man, they'll be like, you know, well, stop being lazy, go to get a job, you know, just, you know, and it's stereotype. The, the times have changed now and the, the programs are, are here and they're coming and, and uh, women are starting to take more um, advantage of them, which is great. But you know, in the in the in the past, you know, it was always kind of we had more sympathy for the, the 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 ladies, you know, whether they were veterans or not, you know. And so, well, I, we've it, seen a lot of discrimination out here, haven't you, Martha? Oh, wow. yeah. Well, and actually, it's it's interesting because it's less discriminatory here in California, not surprising, um, than my experience in Minnesota. I I knew nothing ever 
And it was funny because I when I got into the 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 veteran uh, work, I called a couple of my battle buddies from basic training, and they still had never heard of any housing, employment, um, you know, this free health care for for women at at the VA that have experienced uh, the military sexual trauma. The women won't go. They they don't know about it. Number one, and then if they do, they won't go unless it's a woman. Um, because again, why would you want to go and talk to a male about sexual trauma if, you know, it was perpetrated by a male? So there's still lots of improvements that these programs need to make and getting the word out is like square one. So we're kind of still there, even though they're there, not enough women are taking advantage of these programs. And that's where, you know, the nice things, the nice programs that like John does with yoga you know, and some of the non-traditional stuff that we can do on Zoom um, is more, you know, some of the women from PVA were also saying, and men, that they would be interested. And this, there was some research done in California in 20, 2018 out of the community college net with the vet centers inside the community colleges. And 80% of the women that they surveyed in that research project said if they knew um, where to access some of these non-traditional programs like yoga and meditation and, you know, all of these other, uh, you know, Kijong, I, I think that's how you say it. Um, you know, they, they would take advantage of it, but they, they just don't know. They don't know about them. So it's, like I said, it's going to be interesting to see this new shift. And it's, it's awesome to hear because back in the day, people didn't care about veterans, even like, who cares? Like you'd see a veteran on the street corner and like Charles said, well, I'll get a job. Well, they have a housing resource and they always had one. <laughs> so how about a little help and then a job? Because you can't get a job, you know, think of the order, right? It's easier after we house you to help you get a job, to keep your place and stay, you know, housed. So it's, it's going to take a lot of that rethinking and thinking outside of the box and collaboration and partnership, because right now the programs aren't working. They're getting better. And I would say significantly here since I've, you know, made that transition here to California, but it's worse in other places. Trust me. I've had veterans calling from like the snowbank in Minnesota. Can somebody please come help me? It shouldn't be that way. Right. Well, you know, it, it shouldn't. One thing but, about the military, they're good about informing you on all the stuff you need to know to sign up. You know, but yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> comes time for you to get out. Yeah. They, they, they don't tell you anything. They tell you goodbye. Yeah. Here's a, here's a, a ticket. Nice knowing you. Yeah. Good luck from there. You know? Yeah. And one other thing that we kind of bypass too is if when the, our veterans, what, well, our civilians as well is the, the in California, because we sat on a lot of the committees have it and they're, they're well put together, but a lot of the states just accessibility if you're in a wheelchair is a, is a Trump. I mean, to curb cuts, I, I went to several states and it was just a bag of cement that was thrown out on the curb just so a wheelchair, could, or else they had to ride around in the street because they couldn't get up on the curb. On the driveway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was terrible. So a lot mm -hmm. has to be done, you know? Well, let's say if you're going to live, if you're, uh, if you're in a wheelchair, this is the place to be, California. Yeah, yeah. Well, 
accessible, more, you know, um, aware, you know, awareness, yeah, anywhere. Yes. There's actually a department on disabilities here in California, but otherwise it's just uh, different uh, offices that are attached to, to state offices, but it's mm -hmm. nothing like a department. So that makes a lot of difference. But thank you so much for bringing that. Yeah, thank you, Ken. It's great. It was a great article. Thank you. Okay, so we move right along here. We have uh, Taylor, you're gonna introduce our next wonderful co-host. You got it. <laughs> Richard is considered another role model, a sergeant in the army who fought for his country for over 30 years. He served across the world in places such as Italy, the Hawaiian, the Hawaiian Islands and Haiti. During his service, he managed to build a family and launch a career in entertainment, hosting a weekly radio show while representing models and actors. But Sergeant Cook's greatest battle occurred far after he returned from overseas. Out of the blue, an undetected tumor on his heart caused a massive stroke that required emergency surgery. While Sergeant Cook survived, he suffered substantial brain damage that led to vision loss body weakness and aphasia. Tell us more about your best-selling um, your best-selling book, I Once Was Whole, that we can buy on Amazon, Richard. Well, uh, it kind of outlines a lot of things. But first, let me start right now. And through the discussion, let me know how I'm speaking. Because my speech therapist says I'm only at 99% and be able to speak accordingly okay so let me know but anyways uh i once was whole started shortly after i had the strokes i had three strokes a major stroke in february of 2016 then a massive stroke but they're all trying to figure out why i was having these until the massive stroke was happening then they had to do an mri and found it was being blocked because of a tumor in my heart. So that, but the thing is, it was slightly too late because of the brain damage. Now the brain damage took a lot more effort over time once they corrected and removed the stroke, I mean, removed the tumor. Um, it took a lot more effort over the years for me to get back to seeming somewhat like normal. So that's why I have the book I once was whole. You traveled the world while in the military. Do you yes. think any of uh, of your illnesses came because of, of the trauma that you may have experienced in the military or was it after you got out or do they well, know? I still had determined back in 2005 that the army doctors had told me your cholesterol is very high and your blood pressure is high. But they never advised me on what I needed to do to lower those down and didn't even give me statins until I went to the VA and started working with statins. Then now I have from the VA, which they now give me a, uh, one of titles as I used to know it, an EpiPen injection, which I take that every two weeks. So I have an EpiPen injection for lowering the cholesterol. Now I'm going to go back here very soon and they're going to determine if I need to do another uh, 
blood test to determine if the cholesterol is now in within normal ranges. So, but it's still undetermined. I kind of point out it was caused by eating MREs, which at that time they had not made those MREs in the right direction, which would not put so much cholesterol on you. But the thing is, that's what I'm kind of determined on, but that's still something having to go through the process of determination uh, in that respect. So I didn't let that stop me. I just continued doing things to become uh, much more able to do things than what happened in 2016, which had left me uh, very weak on my left side. But I still work that left side out so that way I can still do things physically. So for example, I couldn't I couldn't do this. Now I can do this. Because before like that, it was like this. I was just like that. But I kept working that out, doing um, uh, compressions, things like that. So that way I could still be able to move my fingers. But now I can move my fingers and I'm getting at that point. One of the things that the strokes doctors told me that it's the neurons. The neurons were damaged in the brain, which they have to find new pathways. So I figured I'm gonna continue doing things, not giving up. That way the pathways will regain themselves in a different direction in brain. So that's why I kind of work, worded, I once was whole in that respect, because I was whole before, but then I had to rebuild it. So now I'm rebuilding everything. So what are you doing now as far as your uh, outreach? You, you're involved in a lot of, of athletic stuff and, and uh, different um, walks and mountain, mountain rock climbing and, <laughs> yeah. and so, deep I mean, sea fishing. And... Yeah, I've been doing that, especially with my vision loss. I've That's still been doing good. archery and right. be able to focus enough to get my, one eye that would work because I'm blind in my left eye and somewhat blurred in my right eye. So that's mm -hmm. why I would do the archery and I was still hitting bullseye. Then also I've been doing photography, which before I was a photographer and then I had to rebuild myself in that respects to be able to do what I can do photography wise. So in that way, I still do photography to this day. Do you have any pictures to show us or are you going to bring them back? I think you have yeah. some, some, some pictures. Yeah, we might, we might have a few. I'm not sure. Uh, Charles, do we have any pictures from uh, the photography site? Okay. So anyways, I still doing photography so that way I can still keep my focus out. And at the same time, I do the photography because one, I have to, I call them editing a little bit where I can make it more colorized. Uh, but the original photo, by taking it, by focusing on it, it keeps my mind at a calm level. So that way I don't stress. I do things very calmly. So I become more artistic. Very, thera the very therapeutic for you. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So they, they've yeah. even asked me that uh, through our stroke group meetings, uh, mm -hmm. sessions. Um, and they say, how can you do all this? I said, because it keeps me calm. And they like that. <laughs> and uh, Charles, you're going to show some pictures, right? That's yeah. it. Um, there's a couple. Yeah, that's one right there. That's crying tree, I call it. <laughs> Why do you, oh, I see. 
Never mind. The tears. Yeah. Now I take a picture of the flowers like that particular rose. That rose was actually at West LAVA. So I took it, but I, I kind of colorized a little bit more and made it more artistic. Made it look animated, huh? Yeah. That's and that, that's the gold rose. So the thing is, I'm going to try to have that where I can develop it into an actual hard pendant. Mm -hmm. And then that's a recent one there uh, for a hibiscus flower. And then that's the one out there by Santa Monica Pier, uh, by the pier area. Uh, and that's a recent rose right there. So I've been working on a lot of things to, just to be able to do things artistically and still end up doing enough to win various types of awards through the VA or the Creative Arts Festival that they have. Yeah, you have those mounted in beautiful frames. You didn't show those and you have them displayed different places as well, right? Yeah. Right. Mm, that's great. Well, congratulations. Yeah. We're happy to see that that's you're quite active and maybe yeah, next then, time when you come out, you got a slew of pictures you haven't even I, shared. I've been, doing, I've been doing things even physically, uh, such as the background right there where I participate participate with the sports for vets and mm -hmm. in that aspects they call it the VA throwdown so I've done that but this time in 2022 I ended up taking the gold medal you right. did take a gold medal yeah the gold, that's what's out on the screen right there behind me <laughs> the gold medal great and then you just get appointed to as a commission a commissioner for uh, no I'm new commander for the disabled American veterans there in Culver City. Oh, the commander. Okay. Yeah. Command, because it's, it's the local post. Is it the DAV or the or the VFW? The DAV. The DAV. Okay. Congratulations, Richard. Congratulations. Right. Keep up the good work. You're very, very special to us. Thank you very much. All right. So, Martha, you're going to introduce our next guest, Oppen. You're going to get that name right eventually. <laughs> Well, I've been, because of his financial background, John, I've been calling you Oppenheimer to people. And it's just, I can't get it. Like, so I mess it up. Too only yeah, it's not just you. Right. Um, but yes, I would love to introduce our wonderful U.S. Air Force veteran, Mr. John Oppenheim, who's going to inform us about mental illness and why we have uh, veterans that are, you know, kind of the status, right, of, of the veterans in terms of mental health and give us a little bit of, of background history. Take it away, John. All right. Thanks a lot. I'm going to share my screen. So this is not death by PowerPoint, I hope, but um, can you all see that? Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, I was, well, I was hoping or we were talking about maybe doing this back in uh, May, but <laughs> we didn't, that's because I did my first one in May and I do once a month now, so it's first of June, but just imagine it was a month before. Anyway, I, I'm going to go through a little bit of history and uh, how we evolved to where we are and what's really being done today. And uh, this is 
strictly a personal thing. It's my take as an advocate. I'm not an expert in uh, mental health issues, and I'm really, as I said, more of an advocate. <clears throat> so I'm going to go through a little history and actually my personal involvement in the mental health movement. And, and a lot of people really don't understand or don't know the background other than they see pictures of up until the early 1900s of people being thrown into mental institutions and forgotten. But back in the 1930s, uh, mental illness treatments, and by the way, I use the term mental illness and they have a mental illness, they're not mentally ill. It's actually a disease. I think I actually put that in here somewhere else. But in the early days, the electroshock, insulin, and malaria injections were common just to control convulsions. And it really was something else that they did. And of course, everybody, I hope everybody's heard of what lobotomies are. It's basically that the doctors would figure out there was an area in the brain that was diseased or whatever, and then they just cut it out. And uh, people that, as I said, had severe anxiety and depression and <laughs> kind of really bad treatment. But it went for uh, a long time, actually up into the 40s. And so some significant eras, number one, he's starting on top left, uh, 1946, President Truman signed the National Mental Health Act, and that gave research dollars for mental health and uh, looking into mental illness, which resulted in 1949, uh, the National Institute for Mental Health. So we've all heard of the NIH, which is the Institute for Health, National Institute for Health, but mental health didn't start till 1949 as a separate issue, was kind of forgotten. And then drugs started kind of creeping their way into this whole thing. And in 1949, lithium came out and uh, was for bipolar disease. And people are still using lithium today. Um, and it just works on a certain part of the brain and then the first antipsychotic drugs came out in 1952. It's hard to believe, really wasn't that long ago, well, at least for me. Uh, and that was uh, the, the zine drugs, corpsomazine, and there's just a lot of them that have been around. The, the problem was that the drugs really didn't cure anything, but they helped control the disease. But the issue was that while they worked on the symptoms, for the patients, it was a much different story. And uh, anybody that was around in those days or you've ever seen the pictures of it, just see these zombies sitting around institutions. And it was really very sad uh, and uh, something I saw. Uh, so now there was a national movement in mid-1950s to reduce institutionalized patients. This is where the homeless problem started. And the, the thinking was that rather than put people, this is a picture, I think it's Agnew State Hospital up in uh, Santa Clara. And I actually have a great uncle who was the medical director there back in the 40s. And um, anyway, it's, and, uh, and those in Southern California out in um, San Bernardino up in Patton, there was a, a state hospital there. So there were a bunch of state hospitals around. And the idea was to move them to the local facilities, you know, so that they could get treatment closer to home. And it reduced the number of people who were institutionalized, which was the whole idea. 
Well, and in 1967, and I did some research on this because I actually defended Reagan probably more than I should have. Um, in California, Ronald Reagan was governor. And as you know, the certain Republican Party, I'm not being political about this, but in, especially back then was reduced government spending. So because of the advances made in deinstitutionalizing people with figure, well, they don't need that many funds anymore. And as I think, and one of the reasons I defend Ronald Reagan is he wasn't alone because the legislature agreed. And in California, there was a Nyerman Petrus Short, there were three legislators in California, and this Nyerman Petrus Short Act was uh, passed. And basically the tenets of that were no fourth institutionalizing. So in those days, if you had somebody acting up, you could take them and throw them into a, a mental institution. They said, no, that's not right. We can't do that. We want them to get out into the community where they belong. And this created a patient's bill of rights. And I've got something further on that. So, but they basically opened the doors and said, okay, let's all go to the local area. And the problem was, where were the dollars? Well, they kind of didn't, when they passed Letterman Petrus Short, it was one of those things that said, we don't want people to have these problems, but we're not going to give them any more money. That's a local problem now. And so they're really weren't any adequate local facilities, and we had all these people coming out of the institutions, where are they going to go? And uh, they went out onto the streets where we all know that's where it started. And this was, again, this was back in the 60s. Now, and a lot of people don't know this, but for many years, the Los Angeles County Jail is the largest mental, mental institution in the United States, because a lot of people with mental illness act up, they act out, cops come pick them up, take them to jail. And uh, God, I can't remember what year it was, somewhere back in the 90s, we actually gave a, a, present, a award to the sheriff, Baca, at the time. It was not to do with his other stuff, but um, uh, because of the work that the county was doing, in trying to help people with mental illness rather than just throwing them in with the general population. But I think that's still true today. So this is where my journey started. Uh, I joined Mental Health Association in Los Angeles County in 1978. I moved to Long Beach and got tired of going to the bars, so I figured I'd be able to do something. And so I, I joined the board. And in those days, there were actually there were four or five uh, areas that that were part of mental health and they had one in Long Beach and in those days they were still using drugs to control things and, and, and control the patients this is uh, Thorazine if I remember Thorazine, Compazine, all, I say all the zines and so instead of you know, having patients in mental institutions they were now in group homes and they just basically threw Thorazine down their throats and then I had this one memory I have when I first started, there was a kind of a socializing that was starting to go on. And I went to a thing in Long Beach at the Veterans Park. And these group homes sent some of their people in there. And they just basically came marching in 
like zombies, seriously, it's more like one of those movies. And they, they sat down at the table and, you know, my wife and I were sitting there and trying to talk to them and they're just kind of looking at you because they're all drugged up. Um, and I just remember them eating just like this. And it was, you know, kind of like, well, not something you'd necessarily want to get introduced to, but I was quite shocked, quite frankly. And that was a long time ago, tough to shock me today. Um, and then Mental Health Association in Los Angeles in the early 1980s got a new executive director. He died, I think, two years ago. His name was Richard Van Horn. And Richard was uh, an Episcopal priest who actually had been on the board and then decided he wanted to be executive director. And he is almost totally responsible for the development of the programs that we see today, not just in California, but nationally. And we're, as a, somebody, I was on the MHALA board for over 30 years. And so I, I watched a lot of growth there. And he did so much in, in trying to get the, get the word out, get the funding and a lot of other stuff. But at the same time, one of the biggest think, changes in mental health treatment was the ability to diagnose mental illness better. And brain imaging had just been developed, and UCI was uh, UC Irvine was a, a really big player in this. And as I said, mental illness is a disease, so that they could map the brain and they could see that somebody with schizophrenia had a different brain mapping than somebody who wasn't, or somebody who was bipolar, so different areas of the brain, and they didn't have to cut pieces of the brain out to figure that out. So they started developing drugs specifically for that, but also treatment. And, and that was a, a really big part of it. And uh, in the early 90s, the state of California was looking for ways to treat mental illness and uh, taking a look at things like peer support, and also uh, there was a, an initiative, I can't remember the number, but anyway, that the, there were three test counties for working with um, an integrated services facility was a grant from the state and LA County being the biggest, we, we got the grant, was started in Long Beach got, uh, called The Village, which was down on Elm Street. And now this picture here, is the new one. It's up on Long Beach Boulevard and I think 19th, I'm not sure. But in doing all that, they were able to get the data to go to the legislature and get onto the ballot Prop 63, which is known as the Mental Health Services Act. And through some miracle, because they would have been able to stop it, Scientology, which doesn't believe in psychiatry, uh, would have stopped it, but they didn't find out about it until about two weeks before the election. And so all millionaires in California are taxed 1%. That money goes directly to, the, to mental health. In the early days, the legislature would always cut mental health funding out. And this, this is absolutely huge. And, you know, Charles, you're talking about this is a good place to be if you're disabled. Ain't too bad to be if you have a mental illness compared to the rest of the country. So the question is, well, if that's true and that was 30 years ago, how come we still have the problem? 
Well, one of them is stigma of mental illness. And I know, Martha, you were talking about the female and the, and the minority populations, but I tell you, in a many, many of the, of the minority populations and cultures, mental illness is still not recognized by some. And in many cases, it's like, it, you know, one, one killing in the newspapers just reinforces a stigma that all people with a mental illness are crazy and you, if they get a hold of a gun, they're gonna shoot everybody. In reality, the number of people with mental illness who are violent is about the same as the general population. Now, homelessness is greater than ever, as we all know. And according to a statistic I just read, over a quarter of people with mental illness um, are, are quarter, quarter of the people with mental illness uh, have a homeless, sorry, have a mental illness. I think it's a lot higher than that. And the other thing is that most people who have a mental illness and are homeless are usually dual diagnosed because they cover their pain with alcohol or drugs. And one of the big issues has been kind of interesting to watch the pendulum swing a little bit that that patient's rights that came out back in the 60s uh, got to the point where we see people who really, really need to be incarcerated, not incarcerated, but hospitalized or given better treatment, and they don't want it. Uh, you talk to somebody who takes the, the drugs that are available today and it makes them feel terrible, they get headaches, and it's just not a fun thing. And so they don't like the side effects and, and they just, they'll do anything they can not to do them. We've got somebody down at the villages who's a veteran and that guy can pass every test when he goes to the VA that the psychiatrists give him and they say he doesn't need extra help, he's fine, he can take care of himself when all he is is just practiced at answering the questions. Obviously, the biggest issue in LA and all of California is housing, so inadequate. Um, and this, the, to me, this is the, the bigger issue and the more I see it, the, the more it, it's reinforced. This is not a local issue. And it's not a local solution. It's a national problem and a national solution. You know, if you look at the fact that we have good weather here, you know, Martha, you're talking about coming from Minnesota, you know, how many people who have a mental illness and are out on the streets would rather sleep in Minneapolis in the winter than in LA? They don't. So they'll come out here. Plus, we do such a good job in California of taking care of people that that brings more in. And because it's it's a, it's known as a state problem, the, the country just kind of says, well, that's your issue. So, you know, we have kind of a reverse problem here, if you think about it. And, and just to, you know, touch you on that, uh, John, um, a lot of people who are homeless and mental illness are not, they prefer to be that way, like you said, because they don't want to have to abide by rules. Right. In, in a... In a um, uh, you know, a housing complex or whatever, you know, a lot of people just don't want to have to go by the rules of what, you but know. The, that, that's a good point. And, uh, and that, uh, that also brings up the kind of housing people get. Most of the shelters are really bad, but even U.S. vets, when I, when I was first teaching down at the villages, they said that they felt like they were back in the military, yeah. which kind of 
Glad segues into what about the veteran population, which is even a different part of that. Well, as Martha pointed out, not all veterans go to the VA for treatment. I'm not sure what the percentage is, but it's not as high as a lot of people think. Mm-hmm. And many on the streets don't qualify for benefits because they were discharged dishonorably or you know less than honorable, and they can't get benefits at the VA anyway. And, you know, when you bring up the VA, and and again, Martha, you know, I sent you a text to talk about why people like City Heart exist. The VA is a medical clinic. They are, they are, they're a building and they expect people to come to them. And the homeless population is not really something that the VA can reach out to. And so it falls on places like City of Long Beach, Department of Mental Health in LA County to, to, to go after and try and help the homeless. And again, you know, my first time in, in speaking at, in this uh, Operation Confidence was talking about the agencies that uh, I work with that help the homeless veterans, but, you know, they really don't recognize all the problems, as a matter of fact. And this is this really, to me, one of the biggest issues is that they're not funded for care. So what the Century Villages, and I've got a slide coming up on that, the lack of case managers for mental health issues is woeful. Um, and if someone acts up, and this is, this is really, a, it's got to be a bigger problem. Um, one of the reasons is that with COVID, a lot of, uh, a lot of the programs had a, a drop in the population of people who were homeless and needed jobs. And so they, which is what their job, that one of the programs, and somebody was talking about that continuum where they're, you know, go in, you get housing, you get a job, and, and then you move out to Section 8 housing. Well, they were, they were desperate because they were going to lose funding. So I've seen it where they've taken people off the streets who don't belong in a program like that, but they're filling the bed and that way they can get the money from the VA or from the city in order to pay for it. And I can, you know, I'm dealing with a couple of people like that right now. I got a 75 year old man who's retired and he's in one of those programs and he, they were going to throw him out of the program because he wasn't obeying some rule in there. And then they evict them, and where are they? They're back out on the streets. And we get a lot of people who have been in these programs, and they'll term out on the program because they didn't follow all the rules. And rather than the agencies taking the responsibility, saying, hey, if, you're, if we're going to throw them out, at least let's make sure they get housing somewhere. They don't. They just open a door, throw them out. Yes. And then they'll come back, and they're back on the streets. As an example, and this is, you know, where I work and uh, I have a love-hate relationship with these people, but it's not <laughs> all them. But this is, a, this is the plaza at Century Villages at Cabrillo, which houses 230 veterans and they're all single unit uh, rooms or, or uh, SROs. And there's 400 permanent residents there plus the 200 that are in transition that I was talking about. And the program, that's the, the plaza, which is run by US Vets, has 320 beds and 250 of them are not funded for additional services. In addition, there's an aging population, which is another mental health issue. 
And this is really, really the crime. And I've been to the VA with this. I mean, I'm, I'm still after beating the drum, even though I do work with City Heart. I still take off my City Heart hat and go around there. And I've been to the, to the VA enough times and they admit it, but they don't do anything about it because they don't have the money. And it, really my next step is I want to try and get to Congress. And that kind of brings in my conclusion, which is advocacy for people with mental illness and even veterans and especially veterans who have even more problems, as Martha was pointing out, you got PTSD that's rampant. And the advocacy is just inadequate. The VA is a bureaucracy who didn't know that. Um, Congress needs to recognize this and act and you know, get these people off the streets. You notice in all of the elections today in the LA County, it's all about the homeless, the homeless, the homeless. But, but the issue isn't the fact that they're homeless, the issue is why they're homeless. And the nonprofits that serve veterans and receive funds need to be held accountable. And that's really what I get very upset about is that they're not. Now, you know, there are some initiatives that we had VPAN on and that's run by the Department of Mental Health, which has a lot of money, as I was pointing out. And places like City Heart, uh, where I volunteer and other nonprofits are really filling the gap that, that the VA isn't filling and some of these other programs aren't. We, we're not about how much money we can make, we're about the people we serve. Any questions? No, and, it, and you know, it, you hit it right on the head. Connie, remember we had uh, the one veteran reached out to us, Michael. Remember right. Michael and his right. uh, his friend was, the, was, was Carol, right? She, and she just reached out to me again uh, oh, really? a couple of days ago. Mm -hmm. same thing same thing like you explained john he and, and we met him remember guys he came on the show yeah, he, he was came on the see, show he was couch surfing right yep and and he had it he was eligible well to back it up he he was uh severely beaten in the military and i mean so badly that like when you seen the progression from up to where he's at now and just even how he speaks oh. and I mean, you could see visibly the trauma that that occurred and it was multiple times. So you've got that issue. But yet when, like you said, when he quote unquote acts up or he can't, uh, when he's provoked by someone else, because it was someone else that was provoking him, he got thrown out and mm -hmm. then the cops got called on him. And then here he was in court. And so, but they didn't care about the voucher. So it's like the pork now he, and he had a voucher. So we were hoping when we handed him off after we advocated for him and got a few team of, uh, of advocates in his corner. Now the latest with him, Connie, is that he lost his voucher. Possibly he's back in a hotel motel with bed bugs. So oh. Carol reached out to me, you know, just this week, but it's like, it makes no sense to me. It's like, <laughs> and, and the other part to me, for me too, John is like, some of the people that they have working in these positions. And, I, and I'm not Thank here to knock is. any of like the council, this mental health counselors or the mental health staff work, but they it's don't just care. Just a yeah, job. They don't care. And it's, well, it's just a shame. So it's like twofold, right? You've got the money going to these programs and the programs are not, you know, meeting the needs. And then you got these crappy workers there in, in and out of the VA. Cause I've right. seen some of them at the VA too. So why would you, you know, solve any problem with, with that kind of attitude if you don't care. So it's, 
it's kind of like a, a, a magnitude of all of that in, in one. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's so sad. Yeah. We, we, and you know, what he had gone through while he was in the military was horrible. You yeah. know, I mean, he was incarcerated and, and held in chains and discrimination. I mean, it was awful. I mean, what was that back in what he said the seventies or something? Yeah. Yeah, it mm -hmm. happened. By the time he got out, he was just a basket case. You're talking about mental illness. He had really had a hard time. Well, there's a there's a vet, Navy veteran running for city council in Long Beach. I think you live in his district, uh, Charles. And um, he he's gay, and he was thrown out of the Navy, and he went through a whole bunch of really bad stuff. And he's lucky, he, you know, he's real smart guy, kind of got better and better, but not everybody has that. Yeah, I mean, there yeah. are some great stories, but like I said, it's it's everybody needs to, to understand a problem and, you know, talk about it. But, you know, again, every shooting, those mass shootings, I guarantee you 70% of people in this country say, well, that's another mentally ill person out there. Yeah, it is, it's just straight out just you know oh yeah you know another one of those you know kind of yeah or like or the homeless right they want to be there you know they they don't want help it's like well you don't really understand the magnitude of the problem it's it's no they and i and so i answer this question almost on a daily no that's not true you have to know the circumstances and situation it's you know but it's easier just to say that you know oh they want to be there they want to be homeless there's programs they don't yeah. want help no, there's, a, not exactly. there's another veteran issue that doesn't get talked about, and that is, you're talking about social workers and psych workers and all that. A lot of them are disdain the military. We see that a lot where we are, that, you know, they don't like the veterans, the veteran, you know, because people who are veterans are fairly assertive. And they don't just, you know, fall in the line and say, yeah, 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 right on, you know, they'll, they'll push back. And so there's a lot of resentment that I've seen in social workers who work with them. So yeah. anyway, yeah. I could go on I've and on. I don't want to do that. <laughs> so now that we're all like this, let's do a little yoga. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Do a little breathing. Any more questions? I mean, that's like say I could go on. Yeah, we we could all talk about that for a long time, but no, yeah. let's, go, let's go into your yoga. And we're winding down a little bit too. We have Taylor. And uh, then we have Charles have some humorous stuff to share. What does that okay, mean? Well, I apologize if I took too much time. Oh, it was oh, great. It was great. Great information. We need that. So I'll take what, 10 minutes? Okay. That about is that too much? No, come on. Let's I, go. I can do anywhere from two minutes to. <laughs> I'll take the 10 minutes. <laughs> Uh, all right, I'm going to move back so that you can... Tell us about you know, who you, what you're doing. I mean, who are you with the yoga component? What's the name of your your uh, group? What do you do? You just started... I do, I do something called non-mat yoga. Non-mat yoga, okay. Non like I, I took a class this morning from a woman. That my daughter lives in Hamburg, Germany. It's a friend of hers who teaches a very difficult yoga and I'm able to do it because I've been doing it in for 14 years, but it's real tough. But most people who start out or don't have a lot of time or they don't have the space um, 
are reluctant to, to, to go to yoga. And so I started this class a long time ago with seniors at uh, Century Villages. Yeah, I started off teaching yoga with them at, but then I got to this and then I started working with PBACC a couple of years ago. And uh, I don't know, Charles, if you've been in any of my classes, but Elmer and, and some of the others were, I haven't had any for a while except Elmer. And so I, I make it so that even if you're in a wheelchair or you're in a walker, or you just feel like you can't move around, so this non-mat yoga, but, but it is yoga and it's all about breathing and movement. So if just sit nice and tall, Maybe just okay. close your eyes. Before you start, we're going to do a little. Charleston, before you start, he has something to say. Let me, let me comment on yoga. I've tried it once or twice, and I'm a kind of a wound up all the time kind of guy. Yoga doesn't work for me. And I'm that's okay, you know, but I have my mental is it, great, you know. I've done it. And uh, more than once, because we had a program at work where we actually, and, and I, you know, and I was, and I said, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's just me, you know, but yeah, Charles, it's just you. It's just me. <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah. just, Charles, I'd like to challenge you to come to my class and well, take about three or four of them and then tell me that. I did. I'm more ADHD than you'll, you'll ever be. <laughs> uh, no, no. What I'm saying is, I mean, I, I, I did it in your class as well. I yeah, but you have to, get, you know, if if you don't think you can do it, you're right. But anyway, but, you know, I'm not saying and I wasn't not good. Wasn't trying to point you I'm out, I'm not saying it's yoga's not, not good. Yoga is not for everybody, but breathing is. I gotta say, and I've, I've talked about this before. When you learn to breathe from your belly, you're relaxing this diaphragm, which goes to your parasympathetic, your yeah, parasympathetic nerve, and says, "Calm down." When you breathe up, it goes to your sympathetic nerve that says fight or flight. And that's one of the biggest reasons that yoga is different. It really has to do with the breathing. But I, we can talk about that some other time. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm not, I am a yoga evangelist. I will say that. <laughs> so anyway, whether you like it or not, uh, <laughs> just sit and watch us, So just imagine it, you're feeling... Is that okay, Cousin Swallow, to go ahead and start? Please yeah. do. All right. So if if you think of filling up a balloon with air, that your stomach is that balloon, so you just breathe into your stomach and then up into your abdomen and into your lungs, so you're just filling the balloon up. And as you let the air out, you do it in reverse, out of your lungs your abdomen and bring your belly in towards your spine. And I can take five minutes and do this belly breathing and go from true ADHD, run around craziness to nice and calm. And I always close my eyes. And when I do that, as I exhale, I my, move my shoulders away from my ears. And I inhale. And as I do that, I just kind of kind of let the rest of the world go. Don't worry about anything. All I'm doing is concentrating on my breathing. 
and I can fill my lungs up and hold it my air for close to a minute. So just take two more breaths like that. And just open your eyes with a soft gaze. And on an inhale, bring your arms up overhead. And then exhale down nice and slowly. So every class that I do, we always start this way, just warming up. We don't jump into doing stuff that might hurt. And if you do have any pain, stop. Yoga is not about cardio. It's about breathing, meditation, and movement. And one more like this. And then I'm going to show you something that I learned in this class that woman from Germany does. So when you bring your hands in front of you like this, and on an inhale, bring your elbows up like this, and you're sitting up in the front of your chair, hopefully. And as you exhale, send your arms out and just round your back. And as you inhale, bring your arms up overhead. And as you exhale, bring your hands behind you, bring your shoulders up and stretch those shoulders. So we'll do two more of those. So just inhale up. Exhale out. See if you can keep your mouth closed when you inhale and exhale. Inhale up. Exhale back. Chin up. And come back for one more. Yeah, like that. Now, inhale up. Exhale, arms behind you, and come on back. So every class I do, because as you get older, <laughs> your neck gets stiff and your shoulders get all bad. So we carry a lot of stress in the neck, the shoulders, and the hips. So we're going to do some neck exercises. So on an inhale, just look up. And as you exhale, bring your chin down to your chest. And as you exhale, bring your chin up to the right, just to shoulder height. And then exhale down and inhale to the left. And exhale down and then inhale to the right. And if your neck likes you today, you can come all the way up. If it doesn't, just go back and forth. And we're just going to make a few long, slow circles. Nice stretch of the neck. Keep that belly breathing going. Inhale, down, and then let's just reverse that on the other side. I do these every day. A lot of people wake up, they got a headache, they got a neck ache. First, first thing they do is pop a couple of Tylenol or Advil. I just did this yesterday. Right. So when I 
wake up like that, I just do this. And I don't take, I hardly take any pain pills. And like I said, I'm older than all of you on this show. And on the next inhale, let's bring your shoulders up and back. Up and back. I call this the Rice crispy thing because my shoulders snap, crack on. Me <laughs> too. And anybody that sits in Zoom all day or sits in meetings all day, you're sitting like this and you're on your computer. Me. Good for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just do one more. So the next thing I'm going to do, I do a little hip opener. And, uh, and then we're going to do uh, just a real short one. But we're gonna, I'm going to show you a little core work. So sit up nice and tall. And inhale as you exhale. Just bend at the waist. Take a big inhale, and as you exhale, come around to the right, and exhale forward. Like I said, we're only going to do a few of these, just like you're stirring a pot. Now, I have, I'm pretty flexible because I've been doing this for years. When I first started, trust me, I couldn't even bend at all. And then we'll just go in the other direction. And you can feel this in your lower back. You're working those hips, that biggest joint you have. And just start coming up. Up. Yeah. Nice deep breath. <laughs> so I'm going to show you this uh, core work. Anybody got a bad back? Right. Almost everybody I know has a bad back. And the reason that they have bad back is because their core isn't very strong. And I didn't know that till a few years ago, but um, the stronger your core is, it holds your back muscles up. So you see a lot of people, especially a lot of guys, walk around big pot gut and they have bad back. That's the reason. <laughs> One of the reasons, anyway. So what we're going to do is we're going to take our arms like this again. We're only going to do a couple of these. I did these with Martha the other day. I think we did a few more than I'm going to do right now. So my arms are strong from doing this. So a big inhale, just go to the right. Now, as you exhale, bring your belly in towards your spine and come back and you exhale. And just keep your belly in towards your spine as you inhale to the left and exhale to the right. And we'll just do two more like this. But you should be able to feel, especially if your core isn't real strong. But remember, keep that belly in towards your spine. And shake it out. So the next thing we're going to do is, I think it's called a hacky sack, but just bring your arms up like little cactus. and. As you inhale, come down to the right, put your elbow into your ribs. And as you exhale, come back. And again, tighten your core. Inhale to the left, exhale back. And other side, exhale. Inhale, exhale. This last one. Again, in my class, we have a half an hour, so we do a lot more. Now, the last one, 
Again, this is all seated. So remember the old sit-ups like this? We're not gonna do sit-ups. However, what we're gonna do, take a big inhale. As you inhale, drop your right arm down, bring your left elbow up. And as you exhale, come back and then inhale down, exhale back, down, back, down, back, do one more. So that was great. So, but the last thing we do in every class is something called Shavasana. Usually it's five minutes minimum, but I'm just going to take two minutes. And I want you to sit back, close your eyes, and just relax. Get my timer up. And what we're going to do is we're going to relax our bodies. Just starting with the feet, coming up into your legs. Just imagine yourself just relaxing. Back of your legs, your hips, relax, your stomach and chest. Your shoulders fall away from your ears. Your jaw drop away from your mouth. Let your face relax, your forehead, your scalp. And the hardest thing to relax, which everybody has a problem with, is letting, getting your brain to relax. Just see if you can get your brain for the next minute to relax. Maybe imagine yourself in a place that you've been where total relaxation and peace could be anywhere just by yourself, nice warm day. Now just open your eyes with a soft gaze. Inhale, bring your hands up overhead. Bring your hands to heart center. And at the end of every practice, we express our gratitude to ourselves, to those around us. And I thank you for letting me lead you in this short lesson. Namaste. Thank so you. That was great. Thank you, John. It makes you relax and kind of yarn a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I just exactly. Just <laughs> I've had people fall asleep. It's okay. Yeah, it's great. <laughs>
you, John. We have to have you do that some more. Okay. Tuesdays. Gonna... Tuesdays, he does it at 11 on the Zoom. Yeah, I know. He sent me some uh, uh, email. I'm going to have to join him for sure. Take it away, Taylor. <laughs> Despite a steady year of diversity, equality, and inclusion conversations, the 2021 Braun Ability Drive for Inclusion Report Card uncovered that all that of all marginalized groups, those with mobility challenges have the fewest accommodations to be fully included in society. Compared with the 2020 results, the report also found a disappointing 14% decline in the public's willingness to understand and accommodate those with mobility challenges, indicating a seemingly back to normal attitude as the nation's restrictions begin to lift. After begin to lift after COVID, it seems many people are already quick are already quickly forgetting to accommodate the needs of those in wheelchairs. Noted a wheelchair user who responded to the survey the survey. Braunability, the leading manufacturer of wheelchair accessible vehicles and lifts, conducted its second annual Drive for Inclusion Report Card study to assess the nation's state of inclusion. Braunability surveyed both the general public and the driving force, an online community of nearly 1,900 individuals with mobility challenges and their caregivers. The objective is to identify obstacles to inclusion based on perceptions or mis misperceptions between the public and those with mobility disabilities. The report card gives voice to those with mobility challenges with the goal of furthering diversity and inclusion for everyone. This year, Braunability found a gap in how the public and the driving force believe people with mobility disabilities are accommodated, highlighting two different views of the world. The 2021 Drive for Inclusion report card revealed three key opportunity areas, fair accommodations. Only 23% of the driving force think people with mobility challenges are fairly accommodated, while 61% of the general public sees it that way. Inclusive design, 79% of the driving force belief society is most lacking in design and development of accommodations within businesses they frequent, versus 37% of the general public a disconnect of 42 points. Bias and fair representation. Those with the mobility disability are two times more likely than the general public to see a lack of inclusion of people with mobility challenges when accommodations for that very audience are being designed. Um, when it comes to accommodations in the workplace and businesses, the majority of the driving force agree that organizations are not doing enough to create equal opportunity are equal employment opportunities for those with mobility disabilities. Both groups rated their employers with the C grade for accommodations for those with mobility challenges, with only 7% of the driving force assigning their employers an A grade. When reflecting on all aspects of society, those with a mobility disability overwhelmingly reported that business design and development of accommodations is what is lacking the most. The top three companies that are recognized as mobility inclusion leaders, according to the driving force, um, are Target, Walmart, and Marriott International. Honorable mentions are Amazon, The Home Depot, Costco Wholesale, 
um, Homewood, Suites by Hilton, Kroger's, and Toyota. Inclusive the inclusive business criteria, these companies all have three things in common. They prioritize the following criteria of the driving force identified as key to advancing mobility inclusion. They seek input from people with mobility challenges on the design and development of products and or accessible accommodations by 70%. They increase accommodations um, of 62% for people with mobility challenges and they include those with mobility or other disabilities in how they represent their company or consumers to the public by 39%. Okay, this good. was just a quick comment on this. Like when we went to the, the PVA National Conference, you should have seen this hotel. Now, knowing that the majority of our members are, are in wheelchairs, there's no bathroom on the floor yep. that the meeting rooms were held. Then the the one there was only one of the two, so you'd either have to go up a floor or down the floor. So they kept saying go up, and that door was not wheelchair accessible. Like no more the there was no button to push. So Jose kept having to ram the door with his chair to get the door open. Then we discovered at the end of the week the bathroom on the bottom floor was the wheelchair accessible. So and then just countless like hallways and turns that didn't go anywhere. So one set of elevators would go here, but then another set of elevators would only go here. It was just ridiculous that that whole week because I was in a, a, a cart. I had one of those electric carts because my leg was really swollen and inflamed from the humidity in Georgia. But you don't realize those things and we don't think of those things. And so this article just made me think of that awful hotel. Um, you know, the elevator doors also were super fast. So literally one person could get in before they would physically close. The sensors didn't work. So they would close on people's chairs, actually on people. It was, it was horrible. One elevator worked, but anyway, so that's, that's what I thought of when I read the article. That's exactly what we were talking about as far as uh, non-accessibility for people with, with, with in wheelchairs is just really, really bad. You know, they they would give uh, in some of the cities that I had gone to an event for an individual that uh, not an event, but as a former individual with a disability, but the the facility was upstairs. <laughs> How are you going to get up there? There was no working elevators or anything, which is able-bodied people that was able to attend. So, I mean, it's really, really bad, you know? But uh, we're going to get through this. We're going to make it happen. And I yeah. thank you so much. Charles, I, I know that you go through a lot of this, don't you? Yeah, you know, um, there's this thing about um, uh, accessible showers, okay, or even like the hotels. Right. Like you go to the hotel, um, like, you know, I went to the last hotel I had to stay at. For Christmas, I went up to San Jose. I kid you not, the hotel door was like, it was super heavy. And my sister just so happened to have a bad hip. I was like, look at this, you know, it's like, you know, so, you know, we sh we stayed in the same uh, suite. And it's like, these doors are so heavy, you know, uh, a normal, uh, should say someone who's able-bodied, have trouble opening up, especially if they're like senior or something. So right. they give you that, then you go into the restroom and then they give you a, 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 a wooden bench that weighs, you know, with metal and it weighs a hundred pounds. 
for you to try to, you know, this is what you're supposed to use as a shower chair. You know, a lot of them, and then they have the, you know, so there's little things. They don't have, they have these little flimsy shower chairs, which are made for people who walk to walk into like the tub and then sit down on. They're not really like wheelchair accessible. So a lot of these places are trying to, and John's ready to, I see he's got his, uh, his hand, his hand is, is ready to go. But they, they're, they're not really made for like people in wheelchair. They're made for disabled uh, people, but not necessarily wheelchair users. Well, the point I wanted to make, <laughs> Martha doesn't, I mean, PVA paid a lot of money for that thing to happen. I, that's and don't tell me a lot of money. I blame PVA for that. I don't blame the hotel. Yeah. Well, and they have a whole committee. And so the committee kind of apologized to the group publicly at the end of the conference because these are little things we don't think of that they miss. So yeah. you're right. It was even worse. They have a whole committee that's supposed to be look. And this is, I think it was like the Hilton Hotel. So, I mean, again, in between the oversight of both groups, you know, well, the hotel is guilty for the doors closing on I, people I since they're not working. <laughs> I would, I, you know, I mean, most hotels will pay for a convention group to come down before and check it out. Yeah. yeah, which they did, but they missed some funny <laughs> well, they things. Maybe nobody was in a wheelchair. They're supposed to have yeah. a department on disability or a commission on disability to take care of some of those needs. Well, I'm gonna tell you well they do, but they're not in a wheelchair, like John said. So you, no, you don't are. think of these no, things. No, 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 no. Yeah. It may be because we had the same thing. You know, we had a brand new building made up in this set. And the people that are on that uh, committee who are in wheelchairs, obviously, were just like going along with the flow. And this is the kind of stuff that when I when I get on something, I'm not just going along with the flow. I see things like this, like we're they're literally building a new building where my department is going to move over to Rancho, and then uh, you know they're having these move-in discussions and all of that. And so when they were talking about the furniture and all of this, I had to bring it up. I'm like, okay, is that furniture going to be? you know, shelves that I got to climb way up here to try to get my stuff in. They never thought about anything, any of that stuff. And it's like, oh, you know what? It's like, you know, because you guys don't have anybody in a wheelchair in those meetings. And the same thing happened with um, my health care plan. And I hate to say it, but, um, you know, there are four of us in my department that, uh, you know, I had to put Rancho on blast, but it happened. You know, um, when uh, we got our Kaiser plan, they okayed everything and normally I would give my wheelchair fixed by my uh, vendor and and then just so happened I was getting something fixed the day before the, the brokers came and I got denied and I was like why and I said well the brokers are here tomorrow I found out they forgot to include the four wheelchair people that work in the in, in the, oh, the wow. you know That's and I was like and because there was nobody representing us on the board so when they said I had to literally, I said, well, who made that decision? Oh, the board did. I said, so you guys don't, and so I had to, you know, I had to be an advocate and they had to change the plan. You know, you got a certain window with Kaiser, you know, it's the open enrollment. They had to go through all of these changes. Then of course the guys start calling it the, uh, the Charles plan, you know, like, like yeah, <laughs> hey, you know, cause you know, really? they had, you know, and the, the bad thing about it, I'm just, and then I'm gonna stop. You know, they, they offered us plan A or plan C when there was always a plan B, they never did tell us about. So when that, all of that came up, we ended up getting plan B 
and everybody else who didn't get plan A or C, they had that option. So they, it was a whole big thing that it was a ripple effect. And I said, you need to have people on that board who represent us. And so, you know, when, when you don't, or if you just have people who are just going to say, oh yeah, that sounds good. Then you see, it's the same thing. So, you know, we, we, you know, we need to fight for people who are, are knowledgeable, you know, knowledgeable advocates, not just, uh, uh right. body, not just the body. So that's right. Well, we got a lot of work to do because we are knowledgeable. Yeah. Richard, you have your hand up. Yeah. I've gone through the same thing with my vision impairment and I've gone through a different areas, even hotels and they do the same thing. And I said, I can't see you're going to put me in here. I can't see. How can I, how can I put me in here? I have to do that and stand up for myself because then they have to reallocate me. So it makes it more accessible. Right. Right. That's terrible. Yeah. I even had once where we went to a, a basketball tournament in uh in Las Vegas, they put us in a handicapped room where you couldn't even get past the bed to get into the room. Yeah. <laughs> I said, like, what kind of, you know, what is this? You know, I mean, this is Vegas, you know, it was, it was bad. You know, I've been in some bad situations. Like yeah, I know. Crazy. Well, let's move on. It's on you, Charles. All right. So today, um, instead of just showing a um, humor, I'm going to show, I'm going to show you something that's a little heartfelt too. Uh, but first we got to, you know, we got to, we got to, I'm going to show you this, uh, uh, let me get it up here. I'm gonna show you the, the funny stuff first. Here we got. Uh... What in the world? Since the Rams are, you know, the champ, you know, this is a Ram, so. Hey, get your bike up out of here, man, the crown. Nobody wanna see your little punk bike, man. Get your little crown out here with your lavish bike. Thinking you better, okay, all right, you dodge on that one. Kudos to you. Oh, you think you're going to ride over to the sunset? Just cram. Oh. Feel every piece of these ram hits. Baby, you cram. Oh. I, ain't, I ain't a fool ram, but you cram. You're going to feel this. You're going to feel this. Who you think you are out here with your cram, with your little lavish bicycle, man? Thinking you better than us out here. You know Cram. Yeah, ever since I was a young lamb and I got ran over by a little kid on this bicycle, I vow to always take bikes out whenever I cram. Yeah, TKO, baby. <laughs> you know, you can get this work too from riding in my hood with your little bike, man. Who you think you are just going to come up in here with your bike? Man, I don't want to see no bikes out here. No pedals, no brakes. Oh, man. Bartholomew. You see these horns in your face, player? Don't help off me, Charcoal. You said your piece. You said your piece. Bust a move, then. Go sit down somewhere, you. man. Ain't no games out here. You talking, but talk is cheap. Talk is on the 99 cent menu, playboy. <laughs> you see these horns? Cram. That's just a fraction of what you can receive. That's just a taste, player. Let's go. Man, where are you taking us, bro? Everybody following you blindly, man. I don't know where we at, man. We've been following you for months and we get nowhere. Now you guys out here in the middle of the street. Okay, okay now I'm gonna show you this and I'm done. You know. You have to read your segment, son. <laughs> huh? <laughs> Yo, you <laughs> And then we're going to wind it down. Might have to do it next week. Oh, I got it right here. Oh, okay. 
Is it something silly again? No, no, it's something that uh, you know, you, you know, you the sensitive people will like this, you know. So, well, what's taking so long? Hey, hey, oh, listening to the one that started so late. <laughs> All right, here we go. <laughs> cute charles i'm gonna have to send you the video of uh the one family it was a black family went to uh the drive through zoo and, and they were totally unprepared for <laughs> the animals going in <laughs> to your the one girl was just in shock she was so scared she started drooling it wasn't funny <laughs> but it was funny because it was like the whole family freaked out the boy in the middle when he was getting sandwiched by the cow in one window and the other he, he started throwing up and then the mom oh. was just like <laughs> screaming, like, get us out of here. Get it was I'll send you the video. It was yeah, but it reminded yeah. me of that. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff out there, you know. Uh, but uh, you know, a little something to you know, raise the news. Let's move on. We got to wind it down now, guys. All right, now we talk about hot news. Hot, hot, hot news. Okay. Today's hot news. It's about something we all know very well. The Wheelchair Foundation is a nonprofit organization leading an international effort to create awareness of the needs and abilities of people with physical disabilities to promote the joy of giving, create global friendship, and to deliver a wheelchair to every child, teen and adult in the world who needs one but cannot afford one. For these people, the Wheelchair Foundation delivers hope, mobility, and independence. The Wheelchair Foundation is a division of Burying Global Educational Foundation. It's a 501c3 charitable foundation, and the federal tax ID is so a bunch of numbers like that. We don't need. Uh, how does a wheelchair cost? How much does a wheelchair cost? A. We can purchase a, a deliver. We can purchase and deliver a wheelchair to our distribution partners worldwide for an average of $150. That's cheap. This wheelchair would normally cost $500 in the U.S. But the large quantities that we purchase allow us to deliver each one of those, each one for roughly 150 by 280 wheelchair C container. This same type of wheelchair sells for up to $1,700 in the U.S. and in some developing countries. Yeah, they market well. Uh, how much do I have to donate to deliver a wheelchair to a physically disabled person? A. $150 helps purchase, ship, and deliver a new wheelchair to a person in need and supports the mission of Wheelchair Foundation. To sponsor a container of 100 to 280 wheelchairs, please see our sponsorship program page. How do you decide who gets a wheelchair? A. Well, we distribute wheelchairs worldwide through a network of non-governmental organizations, which is even better, that have ongoing humanita humanitarian relief missions in the countries of wheelchair destination. These distribution partners handle all aspects of the import, importation and distribution of the wheelchairs to children that can now go to school, adults that can now go to work, and seniors that can once again become an active part of life in the society. Question, how can I, can I designate 
designate which country I want my donation to go to? Yes, the answer is we collect donations and then send containers of 100 to 280 wheelchairs each to our distribution partners in countries that have been identified as, as in great need. For sponsoring a container, you can pick a developing country from our list of approved destinations where we enjoy established and successful distribution relationships. There are currently 152 countries on the list. Question is, how many donations, how will my donation be acknowledged? Well, for every $150 tax deductible donation, you will receive a personalized certificate of appreciation with a color photograph of a wheelchair recipient, a person who had their quality of life greatly improved by the gift of a wheelchair. I should have said, and a person. Are all of the wheelchairs going to countries other than the United States? The answer is no. The Salvation Army, Goodwill Industries, Catholic Charities, and other relief organizations are working with us here in the U.S. to distribute wheelchairs to people that need one but cannot afford one. Some groups and organizations do sponsor 280 wheelchair containers to the U.S. at a cost of $42,000 per container. That's a lot. Are these wheelchairs designed for rough third world conditions? Yes. The wheelchairs we built, we, that we distribute are specifically designed for the rough conditions of developing countries. Extra heavy wheels, tires, and front casters, seals, bearings, and nylon seat seating make these wheelchairs the best possible solution for most conditions. Say, so what is the goal of the Wheelchair Foundation? And they're located in Blackhawk Plaza, 3820 um, Blackhawk Road, Danville, California, 94506. They're open 24 hours. Their phone number is 877-378-3839. Again, that phone number is 877-378-389. That's the Blackhawk Plaza. And uh, you can reach them by uh, website at info, or I should say email, info at wheelchairfoundation.org or go to wheelchairfoundation.org and uh, boop, there it is, you know. So um, I've heard about people, I've actually donated stuff to the organization that um, took cares to like um, a, a different country at one time or another. I love how the, the markup from $150 to $1,700, it's great here in the United States, right? Oh, we're known for that, you know, this is capitalist. Yeah, yeah the EpiPen, it's like, cost five dollars to make is 280 dollars to purchase oh, look at the sneakers five bucks to make you know you put a little <laughs> logo on it and now it's uh 300 1200 you know it's like ridiculous that's crazy you know so we had a good show today <clears throat> we're gonna wind it down now show is about to close i want to thank everybody for coming on and your part was excellent excellent John, as always, Richard, as always, and the rest of us, as always, too. <laughs> <laughs> so let's wind it up now. It's on you, Taylor. I would like to remind our listeners and viewers about our amazing advertisement reach. We have 20 and 30 second advertisement slots available. Please email info at operationconfidence.org for more information and visit our Operation Confidence website at www operationconfidence.org visit the resource page for some amazing resources i would like to also inform our viewers and listeners about amazon smell 
When making your next purchase on Amazon, please go to Amazon Smell and type in Operation Confidence in the Choose Your Organization donation box. Amazon will make a small donation to Operation Confidence. And if you would like to get involved in Operation Confidence Tiny Houses Project, please visit our website and visit, uh, please visit our website and send us a message on how you would like to be involved. To our viewers, we would like to inform you about our about Operation Confidence's positive redirection team, a group of male and female veterans who are mentors having overcome similar challenges and situations uh, transitioning back into mainstream society. To become connected or, or to be connected or become a team member, please email us at info at operationconfidence.org. We are also excited to inform our listeners about Operation Confidence's Combat Boots and Lace Women Veterans Mentoring and Creative Arts Group. Zoom meetings will take place the first Saturday of this month. We're looking at um, getting this going this summer. So to get involved, please email Martha at operationconfidence.org. Okay, and as always, we want to remind our listeners that go for our show is to raise awareness about Operation Confidence and its mission, which is to buy, provide stable housing with a wide range of supportive services. So to get involved with our grassroots, gas, grassroots efforts, please email us at info at operationconfidence.org. And don't forget to visit our website. There's some great information on there. And we don't want you to forget to subscribe to Amer our American Invisible Heroes uh, YouTube channel. We're coming right along with that. So by now, we're going to end our show and we want to thank everyone for coming on today. And uh, see you next Sunday. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So you For more information or to be a guest on our show, email info at operationconfidence.org. Bye-bye.